follow along as I read. You've got your Bible open or you've turned your Bible on. You've got to have Bible to understand what we're headed into this morning. Uh, not intimidated at all, except that John Piper, or I might say John MacArthur said, this is the most difficult chapter in the New Testament to interpret. No stress there at all. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, and he did that by offering him own self as the sacrifice for our offenses, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens at the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. For many legitimate reasons, Hebrew believers were making much of the angels. After all, there are more than 108 mentions of angels in the Old Testament and 165 mentions in the New. They have been divine messengers, protectors, rescuers, and aids for all of time. They guarded the access to the tree of life with the flaming swords at the east gate of Eden. They were surprised dinner guests of Abraham and Sarah as they waited for the promised son in Genesis 18. In the 11th hour, they were the rescuers of Lot and his daughters before the fires fell on Sodom in Genesis 19. They were the ministers of aid to Hagar when she was driven into the wilderness by her jealous matron, Sarah. They were the hand that stayed the arm of Abraham just as he was about to finish the sacrifice of his dear son. 
They were the guide who led the servant of Abraham to the bride of God's choice for Isaac. They were the midnight visitors trafficking the ladder from heaven to earth as Jacob fled for his life from his offended brother. In the end of his life in Genesis 48, this Jacob said, The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. They were the deliverers of the two tablets of stone to Moses, written in the fingerprint of God, delivered with the holy law. They were the army that protected Elisha and his servant that the servant could not see. And so Elisha said, Lord, open his eyes so that he can see. And he saw that the hills were surrounded by chariots of fire. Honoring angels wasn't as a biblical thing to do. But many in the early church took it too far. Colossians chapter 1, or I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 2 says this, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by their sensuous minds. Regrettably, the air of the first century Christianity is a repeated theme even today. Our images of angels and our understanding of their nature and purposes is horribly distorted. We think of Valentine's Day chubby cupids with little white wings and halos, or of husker red demons with their tiny horns, tails, and their pitchforks. Our view of angels is the product not of biblical thinking, but of the arts and the culture. Oprah and other spiritual gurus of our generation say stupid things like this. Dear angels above, I know you are here and sense how I am feeling. Please bless me with your strength and love to bring me peace and healing. Another influencer said, although we don't see them, angels surround our lives and are here to help us become the best versions of ourselves. They can help you accomplish your goals, no matter how big or small. Another one simply said, friends are simply angels without wings. But the classic influencer of all was George Bailey, who said, every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. (laughs) A decade ago, Alistair Begg wrote this. The new Christian formula for success is... A little Baptist stress on tolerance, I'm sorry, a little Buddhist stress on tolerance, a dash of Hindu reincarnation, a sprinkling of Christian love, and a thin layer of Scientology. Ecclesiastes says that God has created eternity in the heart of every man. One of the greats of old said, our souls are restless until they find their rest in thee. We are a fallen people living in a fallen world. We are all desperately aware of our need for a rescuer who must come from outside our space. The popularity of such things as Star Wars and Star Trek and the Marvel movies all reinforce that. They always have a, a salvific theme in them. And there is, this, there is this great rescuer that comes and saves the day and saves the people. The church today needs to hear again the first chapter of Hebrews. 
They were worshiping the angels. They were putting their confidence in the angels. Kent Hughes suggests that, that they were trying to blend the worship of Christ with the worship of angels so as to diminish the accusations that they were pagans who worshiped a crucified God and instead they were losing their relationships with their families and their friends and their jobs and their security and they very much like our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and Nigeria today that they, they were surviving only by God's amazing grace and somehow they thought by perhaps worshiping the angels they wouldn't be so far out of the loop that's Kent Hughes explanation it's basically, I think what they were doing is recognizing that the angels were, in fact, creations of God, created for a special purpose, and part of their purpose was they were God's messengers. That's what angel means, is the messenger, someone who brings. The problem was they were elevating the message bearer above the message delivered, and when Christ became the ultimate, as we looked at two weeks ago and again last week, when he became the ultimate final word of God, they, they didn't hear it as final because they were still looking for other revelations to be delivered by the angels. At four o'clock yesterday, I told Linda that this sermon has got to be divided into two pieces. She said, well, you're that interested in it, but most of everybody else is not, so I'm going to try to pack it into one. There's a high probability that we'll have to subdivide it and come back at it in a couple of weeks. This whole thing of angels, I said, I think I could write a book on angels now after trying to understand all of those texts in the Scripture. They are special creations of God. They are of a higher rank than humanity, says in Psalm 8, that, that He is made man what is man that you're mindful of the son of man says we, we are a little lower than the angels which is what happened when jesus became a man is that he who was the creator of the angels became less than an angel when he became a man but god as you'll find in chapter one has elevated him back to that former position of honor and glory their their function as angels falls into basically four categories. They are, first of all, created to worship and praise the God that they serve. I've given you some references. Job 38, Psalm 103, Psalm Isaiah 6, Revelation 4, Revelation 5. Their intent, their first purpose is simply to be those creatures who worship the true and living God. Isaiah said, and the heavens were open, and I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on his throne. And the, and the seraphim threw, uh, flew around the room with two of their wings, they covered their face, and two of their wings in humility, they covered their feet, and with the other pair of wings, they, they flew, and all they could say day after day after day continually was, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. They were created for that purpose. Second reason for their creation is that they became, as it were, messengers of God's message to man. We've already said, Acts chapter 7, verse 38 says, it, says, it was the angels who brought the law to Moses. In Daniel 10 and in Revelation 4 and 5, it's the angels who revealed the future to Daniel and to the apostle John. In Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 2, Matthew chapter 1, it was the angels who announced the birth of John the Baptist who would prepare the way for the Christ, the birth 
of Jesus. They were created by God to be the, the delivery boys of the message of God to God's special creation, humanity. Third, they had a personal ministry to believers, and this is where people get all twisted and distorted in their understanding. And uh, as of four o'clock yesterday, I had a whole sermon on this aspect alone, but I think it'll stay in the tank. Psalm 34, 7 says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Psalm 92, 11 says, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Acts chapter 5 and Acts chapter 12 says that they can deliver prisoners from prison. Luke 15 says that when someone comes to faith in Jesus, heaven celebrates the angels throw parties. 1 Corinthians 11 says that angels attend every one of our corporate gatherings. They are here in our midst even today. Ephesians chapter 3 said that they are constantly observing believers because we are the school by which they learn about redemption and salvation. And one of the, one of the bunny trails that my mind went on is that, that the angels are not omniscient. So they, have, they were created sometime before creation because they were there to watch Jesus create the world and all that is in it. And they have observed the fall and the rebellion of man and they saw the death, burial, and resurrection of the one that used to be seated at the right hand of the Father and they saw him raised from the dead. They saw him reascend, seated at the Father's right hand. And they know that the final chapter is yet to be revealed, but they are are not omniscient they are waiting for it to unfold and as they wait they study us and say what does the redeemed look like there were two groups of angels there are the angels that worship and serve God faithfully and there are those that rebelled against him and there was never a savior sent to rescue the rebellious angels they fixed their mind to follow Lucifer and those are the evil spirits and the demons and they are so powerful that it says in Ephesians chapter 6, you need to be alert that you are caught up in a cosmic conflict and we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We could win that one, some of us, but we wrestle against principalities and powers, against the representatives of darkness themselves. Angels have never experienced redemption. But they're watching it, and they're wondering, where does this story end? Luke chapter 16 also says that the angels become the pallbearers of the saints when they must cross over that frightening dark river. Matthew chapter 18 says that our children have angels that guard them. Now let me... Let me mess up your thinking a little bit, as though I haven't already. If the angels are the personal ministers of the saints, and they are able to put chariots of fire around a preacher in the hill country, and they're able to wake up sleeping Apostle Peter in a jail cell and lead him to safety. Why is it we read in Hebrews 11 that many of them died by the sword? 
And many of them were sawn in two. If, if God in His power could have set Peter free from jail cell, would he not, could he not have rescued James from the same jail cell and instead he let James lose his life in his head while rescuing Peter? And, and the reason that this has been such a struggle is that thousands of our brothers and sisters have lost their lives in Nigeria in the last few months because they loved Jesus. And hundreds of our brothers and sisters are most likely to see their Savior face to face in the next few weeks in Afghanistan. If, if God could do that, If the angels are still on the job, then where is God when bad things happen to God's people? And the answer is, He's still there. They minister encouragement. When, when, when the saint is tempted to throw in the towel and to deny the Savior, they are there to encourage their hearts and strengthen them. And if they do lose their lives, become martyrs that he talks about in the book of Revelation, then the angels will be their pallbearers and usher them into his glorious presence. Again, this week I stood at the grave with a family for a lady who they said her well-worn Bible was never more than an arm's length removed from her. And that she could quote the appropriate scriptures at the drop of a hat when a situation came. Stood there as a reminder that we live what we perceive to be in the land of the living, dreading the day when we have to go to the land of the dying. But a proper biblical understanding is we dwell in the land of the dying, longing for the day when we go to the land of the living. So should he choose that for you or for me? In that moment of crossing over, he'll be there. Number four. See why I said it's two sermons? I was like, I can't stay off the bunny trails. They are the executors of divine judgment. It is the angels that he will send to separate out the wheat and the tares. According to Revelation 19, it's the angels who will unroll the scrolls, sound the trumpet, and pour out the bowls of wrath. They are specially created servants of the living God. They ought to be honored, but they ought not to be worshipped. One more side moment, and then we're back. Have you noticed that we, we think in terms of fat, pudgy, little, fluffy-winged halo. Or we think of angels in that, or the, the scary guys with the little horns and the husker red suits with the tails and the forks and all of that. Whenever someone knew that they were in the presence of an angel in the Bible, they fell in fear before them. In fact, when angels speak, the consistent, repeated statement is simply this, Fear not. 
They are terrifying creatures. They are awe-inspiring creatures. They are powerful creatures. They are servants of God, but they are not gods. And every time someone fell before them in an act of worship, they were rebuked for that and said to stand up. They worship, they do not receive worship. And you see that in Revelation over and over. So there are seven quotations here in chapter 1 from the Old Testament declaring that there are five areas of superiority of Jesus over the angels. So in answer to the question that was posed when Jesus looked in John chapter 6 and, and, the, and the multitudes had turned and walked away, He looked at the disciples who were remaining and said, do you too want to go away? And Peter skillfully and sightfully answered, Lord, where would we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. So again, for those that are solid in their faith, here's a word of encouragement and hope. This Jesus that we have trusted in, praise the Lord, He is enough. For those that are on the edge of looking for the exit ramp to their faith, an easy way out, this reminder, this Jesus is enough. And if you walk away from Him, Where will you go? There is no plan B. And for those of you that are here and you have intellectually assented to these facts, but your stubborn heart has never bowed itself to acknowledge your desperate need of a personal Savior, a rescuer from outside your world, would you consider the fact that God sent His One, His Son, for that specific purpose, not to make you smarter or more intellectually informed, but to rescue you from your sin and yourself. And if you're just here as one of the inquirers going, have these people flipped out or something? They actually sang like God was listening to them, and they actually listened to the Bible like it's actually the Word of God. Let me encourage you to examine carefully and to ask hard questions because God is not threatened by your hard questions. And I'm going to tell you on the front end, if you give it an honest evaluation and assessment, you will find that Jesus is in fact enough. First of all, His name is superior. Verses 4 and 5. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. When you talk about the name to the Jewish people, it, the name identified, it was, it was a statement of rank, dignity, position, and authority. If you have your Bible open or on, would you turn to Psalm two very quickly let's take a look he cites from psalm 2 especially verses 7 to 9 but in psalm 2 why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the lord against his anointed does this sound like today's news or what Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them 
in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The rebels taunt God, or as we said last week, the 4,000 people that don't believe that God exists, standing on a hill, flipping God off, because somehow they think that'll put an end to Christianity. There's nobody up there for crying out loud. That's these guys, verses 1 to 3. God on the throne answers, I am going to put my king on the throne, and his son, who he plants on the throne, says, verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you're my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel and then the holy spirit's voice jumps in verses 10 to 12 now therefore o kings be wise the voice of reason and the spirit is if god sits on the throne and god appoints his king and he will render vengeance if you're wise serve the lord with fear rejoice with trembling kiss the son lest he become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's, that's our confidence in the face of what's happening around the world today. Is that God's son Jesus will ultimately take the iron rod. And they will pay horribly for what they have done to his name and his people. He's the Son of God. It simply means that He is identified as the one and the only. It was this that they accused Him of blasphemy. They said, He is blasphemy and He deserves death because He says that God is His Father. Now what does it mean that, that He has declared Him to be His Son? Jesus was always God's Son. He was, the, he was the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit from eternity past. But in the Roman custom, when a child, though born into the family, bears the family name at the day of his coming out, on the day of his entering into manhood, on that day he officially is given the family's name. So it says in Romans 1.4, he was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. That Jesus coming out day, the, the day that he was recognized as the adult son of the eternal father was when the father raised him from the dead. At that moment, he entered in to his adulthood recognized as the son of God. He's always been his son, but now he officially got the family name. He says the same thing in Acts 13, 33. We, we bring you good news that what God had promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm, which we just read, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It didn't mean that he was born on that day. On that day, God says, today I have made it clear that you are the one and only. You are above all others. The day of his resurrection was the day of his coming out. His adulthood. And the question that he asked is, was any angel ever made the heir of heaven? Second, his honor is superior. Notice verse 6. 
And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, by firstborn, it's not saying that he was, one time he did not exist and then he was born. What he is saying is he is the first one, he is the distinguished one, he is the, he is the, the primary one, he is the honored one. When he brought him into the world, he cites here Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, the song of Moses, when he said, Let all of God's angels worship him. Something I was not aware of after all these years of reading through the scriptures is that that particular verse, Deuteronomy 32:43, is alluded to in 11 different New Testament books. The angels are worshipers. They are not the objects of worship. So when given a glimpse into heaven, what Isaiah and others who have been blessed to do so see is that the angels are memorized by Jesus. Their attention, their focus is on the one who sits on the throne and all they can say is, holy, holy, holy. That's the role of angels. Not to come amongst men and to be bowed before and worship, but to come amongst men and turn their attention to the one who is seated at the Father's right hand. And we too join in that saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Number three, its position is superior. Notice verse seven. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame. Turn back to your Bible, Psalm 104. Psalm 104. I know this is asking a lot for you to find back and forth, but we rented the place for the whole day, so if we run out of time, we're still in good shape. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. You cover yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with deep as with the garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, those waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. And the mountains rose and the valleys sank to the place where you appointed them. His position is that of creator. His position is that of the receiving of worship. His position is that, that it is He whom the angels serve. They are servers. He is sovereign. There's this other great text. Notice verse 8. Of the Son, He says, by contrast, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness, that's the symbol of royal authority, power, final word, is the scepter of your kingdom, uprightness. You have loved righteousness. You have hated 
wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So this is the one who in his position is exalted above the angels and in his existence is the focal point of their worship. We got to go back to Psalm 45. Again, you and I are unfamiliar with these. If we were writing this chapter, we would have had to have a concordance and we'd have to have Google search and all that. As soon as he cites a psalm, the first readers, they can, cite, they can recite the whole psalm. I mean, they memorize their hymn book and they could recite it. So when he talks in chapter 45, it is a wedding psalm of a king. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. My address, my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of all the sons of man. You know, when I saw that we were singing, what a beautiful name it is. There's something about my masculine makeup that goes just singing about Jesus the the rock the lion and all about being beautiful with the name and then you come to Psalm 45 and of this very one it says you are the most handsome of the sons of men grace is poured upon your lips it doesn't make him a wuss it doesn't make him weak it doesn't doesn't make him a soft one it simply says he is above everything else therefore God has blessed you forever gird your sword on your thigh there you go that's a man kind of thing. Oh, mighty one, in your splendor, in your majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. Your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of right uprightness. You have loved righteousness. You have hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant. They poured the oil of anointing upon. It flowed over his head, his, head, his beard, down of his garments. The aroma filled the room. What does it mean? that he has given him the anointing of joy. Now you've got to go to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. My mission, my purpose, The commission given to me was bring good news to poor people. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, to open the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. His name is superior. His honor is superior. His position is superior. 
His existence is superior. Psalm 102. Verse 25. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, yet you will change them like a robe. They will pass away, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. His existence. The angels were created. He is the uncreated creator. Hebrews 13.8, when we get there in a few months or a year or two, we will read, He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You do not change. And then he ties it all together with his superior destiny. Notice verses 10 and following. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens of the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. Basically what he says is that this world that we are struggling so much to preserve and save will ultimately, he says in Peter, it will be destroyed by fire. Not by a flood, because he promised he put a rainbow in the sky to remind him, don't wipe them out with water again. But he will destroy it. It will pass away. But when it does, he will make all things new. He will create a new heaven and a new earth, because he himself, though everything around us is destroyed, like wearing out your favorite shirt until when you're moving, your wife says, you need to put that in the giveaway box, and, and you begrudgingly hang on to it because it just fits so comfortably. He said, that's what's going to happen to the world. Like a garment worn out, it will be discarded, but he will replace it with that which is new. To which of the angels did he ever say, why don't you sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Psalm 110. I just need to, so it's only fair that I tell you that I have hearing appliances. So when the first cross-reference or two I give, I hear all the pages turning, but when you stop turning, I, sorry, I can hear that as well. I know, I'm wearing you out by cross-references. Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in their holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn He will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment upon the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over a wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, He will lift up His Head. His destiny is simply this. The one who is seated 
on the right hand of the throne of God will ultimately have his enemies as his footstool. They can defy him, they can challenge him, they can mock him, they can deny him, but scripture is very clear. One day, every one of God's enemies, even the most vile and greatest of them all, will one day bow at the feet of his anointed son. One day, the warrior king will destroy all his enemies and set all things right again. I've read the last chapter. We win. Between here and there, it's a battle. It's a cosmic conflict. Ultimately, what that means is simply this. In their day and age, when, when, a, when a battle had been waged, the loser would bow willfully, under threat, of course, but at the, at the very feet of the one who conquered him. And to demonstrate his total conquest, the ruling one would put his boot on the neck of the one who had, he had defeated. Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, that he will one day highly exalt him, give him a name that is above every other name, so that at the name of this Jesus, this Son of God, every knee will bow willfully before him, acknowledging he is who he claimed to be. And every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, and all of that to the glory of the Father who sits on the throne. One minute. Angels made much of Jesus. You ask the question, why did he choose seven quotations from the Old Testament? Because the people that are drawn to worship in the angels trust the scriptures as the word of God. And so he simply reminds them that they had a distorted understanding of the reason and the role of the messengers called angels. And so he corrects it by reminding them that there was a plan where a greater messenger would ultimately come. The final word would be the son of God. So angels made much of Jesus. They announced his coming to Mary and Joseph. They declared his arrival to the shepherds. They ministered to him after his 40 days and 40 night temptation in the wilderness. They announced his resurrection from the tomb. And one day very soon they will shout, he is coming again. His name is above all names. He alone is worthy of our worship. He holds the final authority over all, for He is the Maker. And only He should captivate our hearts. And then He says in verse 14, so He makes much of Jesus without making little of the angels. He, he gives them their proper role and honor. They are, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? And the answer is yes. So summarize it this way. The king who loved you enough to leave his throne and to die in your place now sits in power to act on your behalf. And he commands an air force of angels greater in number and power, myriads and myriads, thousands of thousands, more than anyone can count, ready to come to your aid. And He can deliver you 
from anyone and from anything. And the blind Fanny Crosby, just one line in one of her famous hymns was, Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy and whispers of love. The truth of this is simply that we come to Him by faith for saving grace. But we also come and bow before Him for sanctifying grace. Because He who began a good work in us is determined to perform it until the day of Christ.